Hello, good evening, and I could not be happier than to be welcoming our guest from the East Coast of America, the extraordinary novelist, writer, and thinker, Amitav Ghosh. Um, Amitav came into my life when I first read The Sea of Poppies, which then, of course, I went on to read the whole of the Ibis trilogy. Then I started just reading every single novel of his, and I realized just how rubbish so much of the history that I'd been taught at school was. He made me see things in a really different way. The last novel of his that I read is Gun Island, which in fact I just finished, can't recommend it too highly. But we're here tonight to talk about his non-fiction book, which is just out, called The Nutmeg's Curse, a parable, Parables for a Planet in Crisis. Now, he has made the history of the nutmeg one of conquest, exploitation of both human life and the environment. And as we'll see during our interview, he's made us understand through this nutmeg, this nut, how we can see the whole origins of our contemporary climate crisis. Quite honestly, I have not read a book in years, I can't remember when, that has made me re-question so many things, made me think about things completely differently, and in a way answered all sorts of questions that I realized were lurking around inside my head. Naomi Klein says on the cover, and I will show you this beautiful cover and remarkable book, she says, read this book. Absolutely, please read it. Details of the book are in the chat. Please buy it. We've got already pre-sold lots of copies through Newham Books, but you're in time to get more. It's a wonderful read and everyone I know who's read it has passed it on to several friends. I'm no exception. So with no more ado, welcome Amitav. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. It's wonderful to see you. Um, please put your questions, uh, all our listeners, in the chat. I know our audience quite well, and I suspect you're going to have a lot, because I can't cover everything in the time allowed. A day or two might get better, but not 40 minutes or so. But let's start right at the beginning. I mean, it's a very provocative title, A Nutmeg's Curse. So why does the nutmeg tell such a huge story? And how did you decide on that? Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me on, Rosie. It's a real privilege and pleasure to be talking to you today. And thank you uh, to, uh, to your audience for joining us. So the nutmeg, well, you know, I've, all my life I've been using nutmegs, uh, just like we all have, it's just something that sits around your, in, in your kitchen and it's very cheap and you pay no attention to it. But, uh, <clears throat> you know, I find that I learn a lot through traveling. And I've, uh, I've been writing about the Indian Ocean for a long time, wanted to visit the Spice Islands for a long time. And I was finally able to visit in 2016. Uh, and that was when I really learned the history of the nutmeg. Uh, you know, uh, what basically happened is that the nutmeg, the nutmeg tree only grew on this tiny cluster of islands uh, known as the Banda Islands. Uh, they're very remote, very hard to get to even now. Uh, they're, they're kind of close to East Timor, but they're really in the middle of nowhere. So, but uh, they had this miraculous tree, which for centuries and indeed for millennia uh, made them rich and prosperous and people from all around the world went there because the nutmeg tree produces nutmeg and the outer covering of the nutmeg is mace, which was even more valuable. So as we all know, the great navigators of the, uh, uh, of the 15th and 16th centuries set off uh, partly in the hope of finding spices. So they made their way to the nutmeg islands very early. And for about a hundred years, Europeans of all kinds tried to impose a monopoly on the nutmeg trade. Uh, but of course, uh, you know, the Banda Islanders weren't just going to give up their, uh, their, their trade. So they resisted. Finally, in 1621, the Dutch who were then dominant uh, put an end to the whole thing because uh, the, uh, the governor general at that point was a man called Jan Peterson Kuhn. And he led a fleet to the Banda Islands in 1621 uh, with the idea of imposing a final solution. And he did. Uh, within a space of a few weeks, they completely depopulated the islands. Uh, they killed a lot of people. A lot of people died of starvation and disease being driven into the mountains. Uh, a lot were enslaved and taken away to other, uh, to other islands. And uh, essentially the Dutch then turned the Banda Islands into a kind of plantation economy uh, with a Euro descended elite and uh, slaves brought from all over, but many also from India. 
So, you know, for me, this was the story that here we had this, th these islanders had this miraculous tree, this literally a tree of life. And I don't think it's a coincidence that in every culture, there is a story of the tree of life, uh, you know, and they really had this tree of life, but uh, that tree of life eventually became the tree of death because the, uh, the ba Banda Islanders were essentially among the first uh, people to suffer from uh, the resource curse. Uh, and the resource curse in their case actually led to genocide, uh, you know. But in a more general sense, we could, uh, we could see this as an analogy for what's happening in the world. We have this beautiful planet which gave us so many wonderful and beautiful things, but we treated it as though it was just something to be taken away from. And in many ways, the climate crisis can be seen as the globalization of the resource curse. So what is one of the many things that's fascinating about talking about what happened when the Dutch got to the Bandanese Islands is that they started to see the world differently. A, they started to see that people or some people were lesser and therefore did not have to be ascribed full human rights. And also that the plants and trees became just products and it, it what is very fascinating about the book is how you explore that that moment of when we lost touch and we we became also obviously a, a world that was dominated by well the western elite at that moment yes and i think it's important to remember that it wasn't just the dutch you know <laughs> yeah. it was, uh, it was it, also the british yes and also spanish and portuguese uh, so uh, uh, the Banda Islands were really one pole of the Dutch Empire. And in fact, uh, the Banda Islands were also the first uh, Asian pole of the English Empire, because the first uh, colonial territory uh, in, uh, in the Indian Ocean claimed by the English was a tiny uh, island in the Banda Archipelago called Run. On the other pole was Northern uh, America, uh, New England, exactly where I am now. Uh, I'm, this village that I'm sitting in was once uh, the, uh, the village of Brooklyn, uh, now Brooklyn. This was uh, New Amsterdam and so on. So I, I feel that this entire process of regarding the earth as dead and inert, uh, which really comes about through the thinking of so-called so enlightenment philosophers, which starts uh, in the late 16th and then uh, 17th centuries, really grew out of a process of human violence. Uh, when European uh, conquerors arrived in America and uh, really uh, <laughs> triggered this uh, kind of incredible mortality event, uh, you know, uh, killing so many people, causing so many others to die in other ways. Uh, and also at the same time that they were depopulating these two continents, they were also repopulating them with enslaved Africans. So it was at this point really that uh, elite European colonizers began to think that they were the only historical agents. They were the only people who were fully rational, who possessed reason that uh, all the other peoples in the world, including poor Europeans, especially poor European women, um, were basically mute uh, and brutes. You know, they were regarded just as brutes who were available for enslavement, uh, for extermination even. And I think it's, I think this whole vision that we have of the earth that comes from that time really grew out of a process of human conflict. Uh, usually it's regarded as just a set of philosophical developments, but I think it just grew out of this. Uh, I mean, I don't think it was coincidental that all the big uh, philosophers of this period uh, were actually in one way or the other uh, connected with colonialism. I mean, Locke, we know, uh, invested heavily in uh, in the colonies and so on. So there is that there is that pretty direct uh, connection. But it was also that that we managed to produce a justification for what happened. I mean, I th I thought your section on talking about how the uh, Native Americans were literally pushed. I mean, they didn't necessarily have to be directly massacred in order to save people's feelings, but they could be deemed to be stupid, uh, not technological, not advanced, and therefore you could just push them further and further into a into a world. I mean, it's a bit like some countries now where your your 
source of your livelihood has gone. You, you memorably say, talk about people sending over blankets infected with smallpox. You, you just sort of get rid of them by neglect and by a moral justification that you're better. Yes, but uh, it wasn't really neglect. Uh, in fact, I would say that what happened in, uh, in uh, the Americas, but especially in North America, uh, in this period, 17th, 18th centuries, is a kind of bi biopolitical warfare, uh, you know, where the environment is weaponized, uh, where diseases are weaponized, where patterns of settlement are weaponized, where livestock are weaponized. I mean, so much of the damage that was done uh, to native ways of life uh, uh, was inflicted uh, through livestock, that is cows mm -hmm. uh, and pigs. And we see this continuing to this day. I mean, the reason why Bolsonaro wants to open up the Amazon is basically in order to create these monocultures of soya and so on, and in order to create, um, to expand the livestock industries. Uh, you know, they, they basically want to turn uh, the, uh, the Amazon uh, into a simulacrum of the Midwest, uh, you know, which already has these monocultures and these vast livestock farms and so on. Uh, and it's kind of uh, so terrible to see that actually uh, uh, often livestock are now directly in the path of climate change. I mean, uh, you must have seen in British Columbia in these recent floods that they had, these ghastly pictures of how the livestock were dying, uh, you know, uh, in these floods. So I think what we have there really is a weaponization of the environment unfolding, as it were, to destroy large numbers of people. And I think in many ways, climate change can be seen within a similar frame. Uh, we see that the way that it's unfolding is uh, often uh, catastrophic, especially for poor populations, uh, for black and brown people and so on. But I think where the difference lies at this particular moment in time uh, is that uh, the rich and the affluent are not uh, protected either. Uh, they, they, are, they are suffering just as much, even though the reason that many rich populations uh, refuse to modify their, uh, their, uh, their lifestyles uh, is simply because they think that they are protected. But, but they're not right. They're not protected now. No, not at all. They're completely not protected. And we see this repeatedly. California is one of the richest parts of the world. But uh, uh, we see climate change impacts disproportionately affecting California. In fact, that the whole West Coast, uh, you know, up and down the coast, as far as British Columbia, it's unbelievable what's happening in British Columbia. I mean, this summer they had temperatures of 49 degrees, which you hardly ever encounter even in the deserts of Rajasthan, you know, and they had 49 degrees out there, which completely sort of... Uh, uh, desiccated their land, prepared them for wildfires. Then you get the floods and the floods uh, come upon this soil where many of the trees are gone. So it's a set of, uh, you know, interconnected disasters. And we can see this mounting uh, around the world in so many places. So the other, the other big thing that you attribute to what happened in the Banda Islands is really capitalism and the desire to just make more. And you have many wonderful quotes about the desire for stuff, the desire to have more than your neighbor. Um, how do we, how, how do you follow that through? And, and I know you link it straight through to fossil fuel extraction. And can you just talk us through that bit? Well, uh... Again, what happened in the Banda Islands, you know, we talk about this thing called capitalism uh, as though it were a thing unto itself where only the law of the market prevails and so on. But actually, it's, uh, capitalism exists within a sort of shell of military and geopolitical power. And without that military and geopolitical power, capitalism actually could not function in the ways in which it functions today. So, for example, in the Banda Island, the Dutch East India Company, which everybody accepts is a, a, is a precursor of capitalism. This was perhaps one of the earliest multinationals, which functioned completely according to a sort of accountant's logic, the logic of capitalism or profit maximization and so on. But they didn't create a capitalist system uh, in the Banda Islands. What they did was after they had killed off all the, uh, uh, all the inhabitants, uh, they brought in uh, Europe, uh, white planters 
and provided them with slaves. Mm. Uh, and it's within that outer framework that you have the functioning of something uh, like capitalism, capitalist profit maximization. So basically what they put in place was what uh, uh, Cedric Robinson called racial capitalism. And in fact, in many parts of the world, we can see these forms of racial capitalism uh, operating through the 19th century, that is to say with forms of slavery, indenture and so on. And in many ways, the geopolitical structures of that time are still in place. So, you know, those geopolitical structures were really reinforced by the invention of, uh, by the discovery of uh, fossil fuel powered uh, technologies. And again, Britain was the pioneer in that. And Britain uh, deployed this power uh, to deadly effect, you know, from the early 19th century onwards. In the early 19th century, under Muhammad Ali, uh, Egypt was trying to create actually an industrial economy. So what did they do? The British sent uh, a steamer, an armed steamer, and uh, basically just forced them to back down. Hmm. So today, when we talk about underdevelopment and poverty and so on, uh, we sort of pretend that it just happened, but it didn't just happen. It was enforced. It was created by structures of war. The same was true in China in relation to the opium war. A single, uh, a single uh, coal-powered steamer basically destroyed the Chinese fleets again and again and essentially won the war for Britain. Uh, you know, uh, there were only about 4,000 soldiers, uh, half of them Indians, uh, going off to fight the opium war. And, uh, but, you know, basically it was a fossil fuel technology that, uh, that defeated them. So there are these long genealogies, but you were asking about... Um, uh, about acquisitiveness and uh, you know so what we see in relation to fossil fuels is that once this acquisitiveness uh, is unleashed upon the world it becomes an end in itself and i think we see that most clearly in relation to uh, uh, you know cars mm -hmm. uh, powered with fossil fuels of course i mean i, I was recently in rural utah you know and it's interesting just being driven around the sort of small suburbs and things there. Outside every house, you see like not one car or two cars, but three or four cars and an RV, a giant RV, you know? So this becomes completely an end in itself. A car is no longer a tool. You know, it's no longer something that you get into and go to work. A car is a way of life and it proliferates. So just as, uh, you know, once upon a time, uh, time uh, people thought, uh, you know, I'm going out this evening, I feel like wearing uh, a certain suit of clothes. Uh, today, when people go out, they think, oh, well, today I'll go in my Buick and tomorrow I'll go in my Honda or whatever. And this disease has completely seized the world. In India today, if you go to, uh, if you go to Delhi, you know, uh, just ordinary urban Delhi, you'll see outside completely middle-class homes. Again, three, four, five cars and other vehicles too, scooters, motorcycles. So, you know, the fossil fuel economy has become completely untethered from any kind of instrumental mooring. It's really become an end in itself to which people have formed all kinds of bizarre uh, uh, attachments. And how do we respond to that? Because you are a writer, you're an artist, you're an author, um, and I know in The Great Derangement, you write about you know, what, what our response should be at this time to this catastrophe. And that you, know, you, you, you talk, in fact, I think from, your, yeah, from The Great Derangement, you, you talk about what people will think when they look back on our era as to where the writers went at this moment to try to articulate what's going on. I mean, I, I find it always that when people talk about the future, you know, you have an image, one image which says that we've all got to end up wearing sandals and keeping goats. And another image is a kind of, you know, what James Lovelock says, for instance, that we're all going to, the people that survive will end up living in a sort of, you know, equivalent of a termite mound because they've worked out how to live in great heat. And somehow, we're lacking the imaginative capacity to find roads through the middle. Yes, and I think since we were on the subject of fossil fuels, let me just uh, uh, talk about that for a little bit. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we've grown so used and within, say, the climate community, there's a sort of sense uh, in which we talk about fossil fuels 
only as though as though as though they were only producing energy you know so on that on those grounds the reasoning is that uh because they just produce energy they can be re uh, replaced with other forms of en energy alternative forms of energy so there you know fossil fuels are just reduced to this form of this thing called energy but in fact what we see with fossil fuels is that they create attachments of many other kinds so for example i mean on my street every few every couple of hours or so there are people on these giant noise making motorbikes who go down the street making a huge racket and i'm sure you have them in england as well we have biker gangs everywhere uh but those guys uh, i mean those people men and women who are driving those uh, those bikes the noise is what they like you know the whole it, it's an aesthetic attachment you know to the to the particular modes of fossil fuel behavior and those aesthetic attachments go very deep within american society so that the american idea of freedom is profoundly tied to fossil fuels uh you know to the idea that uh, you know when you think when you when you think of an image of freedom it's like james dean mm -hmm. uh, roaring mm -hmm. down uh, uh, some sort of empty highway uh, or of peter fonda you know roaring down an empty highway on his uh, on his motorcycle or whatever and these are very powerful images so in fact when you have people here uh, crowds yelling drill baby drill you know it's an aesthetic attachment it's not just a question of energy it's a question it's a question of other kinds of attachments and here i think is where we as storytellers have failed and where the imaginative community has failed because we have we have created no similar stories uh, about alternative energy you know alternative energy the only stories that attach to it now are, are you know like stories of virtue a stories of giving something up you know there are there there, there is no romance as it were uh, attached uh, to these other sources of energy and i think that's a very important thing that storytellers must do to as it were find a narrative uh, of alternative energy that is equally appealing you know that uh, that draws people in and motivates them uh, to see fossil fuels in a different light that's a really really interesting idea that that we can find uh... A different narrative for alternative energy, and you're quite right that everything is always about the giving up. And um, we were in a conversation the other day about how there would be a national, an international campaign to eat less meat. And one person said, "Well, you have to make the person a hero." And there is an extraordinary statistic that for each one of us on this planet, there are ten domesticated animals waiting in cages between. pigs and uh, pigs and chickens and sheep and cows obviously mostly cows and chickens and that you could almost try to make the hero into save the cow but it was still a very it was a very tenuous connection and it was very difficult to see how you made the hero yes and uh, you know that's a challenge for storytellers <laughs> that's a challenge for people like me that's what we should be thinking about and i hold myself uh, responsible and guilty for not having thought of those things because actually alternative energy comes with its with its own incredibly redeeming story you know if we all had our solar panels and a little windmill we would be completely free we would be free of being dependent on the grid we would be free of depending on some giant mega corporation so it's a story that completely fits into as it were a libertarian a narrative uh, even if you like uh, you know but uh, somehow we haven't been able to tell that story well um when you um wrote i mean you've written a lot in the nutmeg's curse as well as in gun island a lot too about the situation with refugees and that the the wave of refugees that is happening now all over the world that it, it the story that story is not told properly yet as a climate change story is it it's it seems to be that people want to put it down to things that are more understandable like conflict rather than going through the raw complicated things to say you had to leave the farm because of the drought or the poor soil or whatever how do we use that narrative how can we empower that narrative well i think it's a very complicated story 
you know, migration is has always been a very complicated story, but it's become even more complicated now. So let me put it like this. Of course, there are people who, who are being quite clearly displaced from their, uh, from their lands by climate change. Uh, Pacific Islanders, for example, people in Louisiana who are losing their uh, villages to uh, other small towns uh, to sea level rise. But on the aggregate, I think the story is actually much, much more complicated. And this became clear to me uh, at the height of the Europe, so-called European uh, migration crisis in uh, 2014, 2015, uh, and so on when I started to notice that a very large number of the refugees who were crossing the Mediterranean in these rickety boats uh, were actually uh, from South Asia. Many of them, I could tell just from the faces, were Bangladeshi or Bengalis. Uh, and this really intrigued me because actually Bangladesh, uh, though it doesn't get the credit that's due to it, is actually an economic success story. Uh, their, uh, their per capita GDP has overtaken India uh, uh, there are many of their life indicators are better than those of India or Pakistan. Uh, so I became very intrigued and I wondered what is actually going on behind this. I mean, of course, Bangladesh is also losing a lot of land uh, to sea level rise. So I, I, in 2016 and 2017, I spent a lot of time traveling around Europe, uh, interviewing migrants, uh, you know, speaking to them. and. Uh, these guys are basically kids, you know, like uh, between 15 and uh, 30, a lot of them. And it was really eye-opening to talk to them because the Bangladeshis especially are very well-informed about climate change uh, because of the government and various NGOs and so on. There's a lot of information circulating within the population about climate change. But, you know, it was interesting whenever I would ask them, are you a climate refugee? Would you call yourself a climate refugee? They always said no. Uh, none of them would accept that label. Uh, and they would always say that there were many, many things, factors behind it. Uh, political conflicts as well, other kinds of economic difficulties often. But I think the factor that we really don't take adequately into account uh, is communications technologies. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the smartphone essentially is the magic carpet of migration. Uh, every aspect of these journeys is powered by the smartphone. Uh, migrants use their smartphone to pay their, uh, uh, their middlemen. Uh, through smartphones, they find, find out where to go and, and so on. And it sounds kind of weird to think that actually this technology uh, may, have, uh, may be con contributing to this enormous movement of people. But actually, it's not surprising at all because if you think about it, uh, because of this uh, uh, last minute uh, industrial manufacturing that we, uh, that, uh, you know, these systems that were put in place uh, 20 or 30 years ago, we have this globalized processes of manufacturing where lots of little bits and pieces are hurtling around the, around mm -hmm. the planet every day, you know, to be fitted together here or there. How could we imagine that this technology wouldn't ultimately uh, affect the movements of people? And it is affecting those movements uh, in a very profound way. I remember, you know, a migrant saying to me, if you want to shut down migration, there's a very simple means, just shut down the internet. And, you know, if you think about the impossibility of that, if you think about how impossible it is to even contemplate shutting down the internet, uh, it tells you that uh, really we are not in control anymore. Uh, would the internet allow itself to be shut down? I really don't think it would. I mean, it's just inconceivable. So the idea that this is, is our tool is mistaken, actually. We have become tools of this giant, uh, of this giant entity. And, uh, you know, so in that sense, I think it's a mistake to think that uh, climate change is causing migration. Yes, it is in many cases. But in fact, I think all these, all these phenomena, uh, the pandemic, uh, mass migration, climate change, they're all actually cognate phenomena. And they're all caused by the same thing, which is the enormous acceleration in, uh, in uh, consumption and uh, industrial production that's happened in the last uh, 50 years. And also because you can, if you're living in some grim part of the world, you can see that there's a better part of the world. 
you cannot put that genie back in the box. Uh, you can't. And actually, whether it's a better part of the world <laughs> is up but, for debate. Uh, you know, I mean, I can't tell you. I, I talked to so many of these um, of these migrants, and they bitterly regretted having left. Uh, you know, they're living like ten to a room in Palermo. You know, trying to eke out a living without the consolations of, of friends or family or food. Uh, you know, so their lives may have been terrible um, uh, uh, in Bangladesh, but they weren't necessarily worse than what they're living through uh, in Europe. So essentially, they are victims also of a kind of fake news mm. that is pervaded, uh, you know, over social media. But it's also that you know the West has, for the last uh, so many years, just been intent on telling the rest of the world we are the best, our lives are the most desirable, ours are the only desirable lives. You all out there are poor and stupid and backward. So at a certain point, people come to believe these things. Does it uh, worry you that you see India and China both going in this direction with more inequality and more stuff? Absolutely, absolutely. India and China have today completely adopted uh, this, what I would call an essentially a, a settler colonial model of an extractivist economy, completely adopted it. And uh, especially in India or even in Indonesia, you, you can see this process of auto-colonization uh, where indigenous peoples, forest peoples are being evicted from their lands and uh, those lands are being opened up to these giant mining corporations. Uh, it's, a, it's a hideous and ghastly thing. But again, uh, you know, the middle classes of uh, India and China and Indonesia, Asia, Africa, everywhere, they have become completely convinced that this is the only possible way of life. And they're determined to pursue it. You know, that's what makes this so intractable. Fundamentally, what we're dealing with here is exactly the fallout of the enormous inequities that were put in place in the 19th century. Yes, and, and do you see though that, I mean, when we were in Glasgow at the climate conference, there were a lot of indigenous people who came from say the, the Amazonian tribes, a group called the Headwaters of the Amazon, and their presence was extraordinarily powerful. Now, whether it resonated strongly, but what, what do you see that people can do with people like that can do or people like me can do or people like you can do? Uh, Rosie, I, I suspect you're probably much better equipped to talk about uh, solutions and so on than I am. And especially since you were actually there in, uh, in Glasgow. Uh, so the plus, the pluses first. I think uh, the presence of indigenous peoples uh, in Glasgow was an enormous plus. Mm. You know, and there were people, there were lots of forest peoples from India as well who were present there, who managed to make their way there, despite the fact that the British government actually made it so difficult for people from the global south to get there. And even once they got there, they found themselves excluded from the meetings and so on. I think that was a huge plus, though, that they were there. I think it's a huge plus that there were so many young uh, uh, protesters, young activists. Uh, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, turned up and, uh, uh, you know, made their presence felt. And I do know, uh, you know, through various networks and so on, that this was, uh, this was, a, this was a very positive aspect of the meetings, that many, uh, that many uh, people were able to create networks for interacting. And it's quite possible that in the future, in fact, uh, that is how we will have to proceed on these climate issues. Uh, through informal networks rather than through formal networks. But the bad part of it is that, uh, you know, uh, this uh, uh, COP26 was a failure even before it began uh, because uh, three of the world's most important players simply weren't there. Uh, Xi Jinping, uh, Jair Bolsonaro, Vladimir Putin. Uh, Jair Bolsonaro was actually in Italy at the time. So he was basically just thumbing his nose at the, at the so-called world community. I think what we are seeing right now is actually a complete breakdown in all the international mechanisms we ever had. And uh, uh, let's not put too fine a point on it. Uh, the United States is largely responsible. Uh, the United States has torpedoed uh, these meetings repeatedly, going back to the Kyoto Protocol. 
but uh, especially uh, Trump's uh, wa wa walking out of the of COP21 and the Paris Agreement, I think dealt a fatal blow to the idea that uh, the world could uh, proceed, you know, on the basis of any kind of consensus. Because what's perfectly clear now is that it doesn't matter. I mean, four years, six years from now, if another uh, American right-wing president were to come into power, they would again be able to walk out without any consequences. So I, I think we see this thing, uh, this entire thing called the, the world community just uh, disintegrating around us as we speak. So you used the words that without consequences, and yet in the last 48 hours, a tornado has ripped through a large part of America, killing as yet an unknown amount of people. As you said, California's on fire. I've just been reading a book called Running Out about the end of the deep water aquifers across large chunks of the very, very industrial agriculture of Midwest. It is having an effect. There are consequences. What is it about, about us uh, that we don't see these warnings? Uh, well, you know, uh, let's, I mean, the really sad thing is that uh, uh, these tornadoes, uh, this tornado outbreak, disproportionately affected communities that were impacted by other uh, elements of the planetary crisis. Uh, you know, COVID deaths have been very high in some of those regions, again, because of a kind of um, denialism. Uh, but also those parts of the of the United States have been very badly hit by the opioid epidemic, you know. So it's kind of it's kind of really difficult at this point uh, to understand why people don't respond. But again, you've seen in the in the United Kingdom, just as we are seeing here in the United States, uh, that uh, a certain kind of denialism in relation to these things is uh, has become endemic and deeply rooted simply because they've been politicized. You know, these positions have become so politicized that they're overlaid over all kinds of other positions. They've become questions of identity. Whereas, as you say, uh, you know, across America, people have, I would say in many ways, the United States is of all countries in the world, the, the single country that is most badly affected by climate change impacts. You Extraordinary. Yeah. yeah. Um, do you see hope in the fact that um, books like the under the overstory um, and books that start to and and the fact that a lot of indigenous tribes made it to Glasgow that there is a feeling that you know nature has its um, has its rights. I mean, there's a river in New Zealand that's just been awarded legal status. The Magdalena in Colombia has been awarded legal status as as a living, breathing, you know, an entity with as much right to be here as you and I. Do you, do you see much evidence of that? You know, it's an interesting thing that the, uh, that the Anglo settler colonies, which actually I think in many ways uh, really set off many of these processes, that in fact, uh, uh, they have to some degree or certain parts of their populations have actually become in some way indigenized in the sense that they've adopted many kinds of uh, indigenous cultural traditions. Uh, there are some who would say that uh, even American federal democracy really was profoundly influenced uh, by Native American traditions. And we see this across the board. I mean, uh, for example, just the, I mean, what do you really identify with American culture if not barbecue? And barbecue <laughs> is completely a Native American uh, uh, tradition, you know? So yes, I do think that there are ways in which, uh, uh, certainly in America, uh, increasingly we do see the sort of emergence of different kinds of practices, uh, different ways of thinking. And there, uh, I have to say that I think the new traditions of protest that are emerging at this time, they play a very important part. Uh, and I'll go back to 2012 and talk about Occupy, if you like, because I, you know, in that year I, I had a book come out, so I was on a book tour, so I visited lots of Occupy sites. And what really struck me is that Occupy was not a, at all a conventional uh, political movement. Uh, they were actually modeling a different way of life. Mm -hmm. They were living simply, they were sharing food, they were setting up all sorts of protocols for sharing. So, and I think we see that increasingly now. 
the most effective uh, uh, political movements, especially those that have been most effective in resisting for, uh, energy corporations, many of them are led by indigenous people and most of all by indigenous women. Uh, Standing Rock is the best possible example. Uh, you know, for, uh, for many, many years, they've held out resolutely against the most awful kinds of uh, oppression and uh, attacks and violence and so on. But they've held out. And I think the reason why they've held out is precisely that uh, it's not a conventional political movement. It's very deeply tied to notions of the sacredness of the earth, uh, of um, the, the, the vitality of uh, even geological phenomena like um, rivers and so on. So in these things, I do see, I mean, I, I think there is a sea change today. And what you mentioned, uh, you know, the New Zealand court accepting the personhood of a river. And, you know, we can, we, we can just see those judges, most of them, I, I imagine, are, are, you know, are older people are wearing their wigs and gowns and so on. I mean, in their private lives, they would probably laugh at the idea that a, that a, that a river can be, uh, can be a person. But, but that they're willing to give legal recognition to this is very important, I think. Mm -hmm. And the same is true of glaciers in Iceland and so on. So I think there is a sea change going on. Well, I hope you're right. And please, um, we've got some questions coming in. So please keep them coming in because I'm going to come to them in a minute. I just wanted to talk about the pandemic. I mean, we are uh, in the UK. We've now got our new Omicron. They're going to give third vaccines to everyone without a third vaccine by the end of this month. We are doing everything in our power to um, keep ourselves safe. So exactly what was predicted, which is that no one's safe until everyone's safe and the, the fair and equitable distribution of vaccines around the world has indeed happened exactly how the doctors predicted, which was a new strain would emerge and it would arrive here. And you can see that this might indeed go on forever, that there might be then another strain because we're still operating under a unequal and essentially a kind of colonialistic mindset. Yes, it's so unfortunate. I mean, the way that uh, Western governments just uh, bought up huge supplies of the vaccine and even let some of it go waste. But here I will say that actually, I think uh, governments in the global south were also really uh, laggardly. The, the Indian government actually could have, India is a major producer of vaccines. I think it's the single largest producer of vaccines. They could have bought up a huge stockpile of vaccines, but they refused to do so. They just refused to put the money down. You know, I mean, it's inexplicable uh, uh, in retrospect. Why? They, they had the opportunity, but they didn't do it. So I do think that, uh, you know, uh, there were many mistakes made in the global south as well. Right. Um, I find it not encouraging, though, about future cooperation. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, okay, some questions from our audience. Um, Toshiaka Ozawa says, what about the aesthetics of conquest? What would be a counter-narrative? That's kind of extends your metaphor about James Dean roaring down the road. But conquest is every movie and uh, so much cultural baggage of ours. Yes, and a lot of that aesthetic has now been externalized, has been foisted upon uh, science fiction, you know, the idea of conquering Mars or, you know, terraforming Mars and so on. But, you know, I think we are seeing a major change in relation to these aesthetics of conquest. Um, and I think that's exactly the cultural moment that we're living through, you know, when uh, uh, enslavers, statues suddenly get thrown over. Uh, when we see the sort of delegitimization uh, of those heroic myths of conquest. So I do think that we are living through that moment. I think it's going to be very hard for people in the future to stand up and say, oh, I was a conqueror. Mm. You know, it's not, uh, it's not a story that's going to go down well. I'm glad. Um, there's a question here from Alistair Johnson. Um, Amitav said people in Bangladesh have a high level of knowledge, awareness of climate change. Is that just because of the impact at home or are there other reasons which could be echoed by other countries? Are we only doomed to get it when it's too late? Oh, I think the world has a lot to learn uh, from Bangladesh. Absolutely. And it's not just because of climate impacts. 
Uh, in fact, uh, the Bangladesh government has been very forward leaning on climate change. Uh, they've, uh, they've incorporated climate change into their school teaching for a long time. Uh, and this has also been the case with various NGOs that are active in Bangladesh. So Bangladesh has really in many ways set the pace. You know, it's interesting. I mean, Bangladesh is subject to catastrophic floods every now and again, but they very rarely lose lives. So, uh, you know, it was interesting to see when, when Germany had those catastrophic floods, uh, which happened very suddenly, you know, 500 year old houses being swept away and so on. Uh, there was a uh, there was an interview with a woman uh, who said, "Oh, uh, I was interested to see her say, uh, oh, we, we always thought these things happened in other countries, not in Germany, yeah. uh, you know. But in fact, uh, Germany has a lot to learn from Bangladesh in relation to how to cope with uh, uh, with with these impacts. Actually, I think one of the really weird things uh, that's happened in the world today is that." Uh, the way that the, the, the climate is changing around the world, in many ways, uh, the people in poor countries are perhaps better adapted uh, uh, to, to dealing with these changes. Uh, similarly, I would say even within poor countries, like for example, India, uh, I, I would think it's often the working class people and uh, rural people who can perhaps cope better uh, with these changes uh, than middle class people. You know, you just take an example like a city like Mumbai. If you have a if you have a huge uh, cyclone coming towards Mumbai, the middle classes would not be able to evacuate. Uh, you know, because they'd want to go in their cars, or they just wouldn't want to leave their flats, which is perhaps their single largest asset. You know, whereas uh, working class people uh, would evacuate quite easily because they're familiar with the railways. They uh, they would know how to leave. So in many ways, I think uh, it's a mistake to imagine that uh, you know, the middle classes or uh, affluent people would be protected in those circumstances. No, I entirely see that, but you're also saying in some way that um, people should be, you know, it would make everyone a migrant in a way because you're just going with whatever the climate throws at you. We see that process already so much underway here in the, in the United States. Uh, you know, we've grown used uh, to meeting people who are leaving California because, uh, you know, the air has become so bad, they just can't bear it anymore. Uh, you know, uh, California, British Columbia, and so on. And these were areas, British Columbia especially, you know, 10 years ago, if you'd asked me, I would have said, this is the most climate resilient part of the part of the planet. And yet people are having to leave. But recently, I've also I've met people who've had to leave Colorado. Uh, you know, because there again, uh, the wildfires have become so bad. Uh, but again, you know, the great derangement of our times is that even as people are leaving in this way, people are also flocking to mm -hmm. the most climate vulnerable areas. If you take a look at the real estate prices on um, in Miami Beach, they've kept climbing, even though we know that this entire area is going to go underwater. The fastest growing cities in the United States now are in Arizona, you know, and Phoenix is a city which is completely dependent on air conditioning. Otherwise, yeah. people will not be able to survive there. Just think of even the smallest disruption in energy supplies and the numbers of people who would be affected. This is extraordinary. Um, Tony Edwards asks, when looking at low income economy in Brazil, cutting down the Amazon rainforest, isn't this just what the UK and other more developed countries also did, but we just did it centuries ago to improve our previously poor economy? This is exactly true. That's absolutely the case. And that's why Jair Bolsonaro, when uh, Angela Merkel said something about, uh, you know, uh, compensating Brazil for preserving the Amazon, uh, Jair Bolsonaro struck back by saying, uh, uh, Chancellor Merkel, why don't you pay attention to Germany's forests? You know, so yes, it is absolutely the case uh, that uh, uh, in Europe, in North America, basically they re-engineered the land. They completely terraformed uh, these lands to look like uh, something else. And this is what uh, the, uh, the Brazilians want to do now. In a way, it's a miracle that they didn't do it before. If it had happened the other way around and Brazil had been colonized by, uh, let's say, English or German people, I'm sure they would have done it much earlier. Uh, you know, it's just that the Portuguese, uh, uh, you know, they had uh, fewer people so, and uh, fewer resources, so they couldn't 
deploy them on that scale. So uh, yeah, what you're saying is absolutely right, uh, that uh, we are paying the price, Brazil is paying the price of uh, a certain model of so-called development, uh, which began uh, in Europe. So how do you think we best uh, answer the inequality question of developing countries who want the same opportunities, if that's what you call it, that, that we had? I mean, are we, we have very little moral high ground here. Yes, that's absolutely the case. I think the one thing that gives me hope is that what people in, in the global south are doing is essentially mimetic, you know? I mean, they people have learned to believe that that kind of lifestyle, that Western sort of lifestyle is the most desirable of all lifestyles, you know? And this is because of like centuries of propaganda because of the advertising industry and so on. Is the Western lifestyle the most desirable? Gandhi didn't think so. Gandhi didn't want India to emulate uh, uh, that way of life at all. Even 30, 40 years ago, uh, in India, people weren't striving to emulate that kind of lifestyle at all. It's only since the Washington consensus, really, that this uh, this crazy desire to uh, to emulate Western lifestyles has taken hold of uh, of people in the global south. Uh, but I think the point of hope over there is that, in fact, if Westerners start changing their lifestyles, then so will uh, people elsewhere. That's the power of mimesis again. So it's really, uh, it's really for uh, people uh, in the so-called uh, developed countries uh, to start, as it were, uh, moving towards simpler and different kinds of lives. Um, there's an interesting question here about the, the present general array of media types become marketable commodities driven by the values and forces of capitalism, which I assume refers to Facebook, Google, whatever, in a way what you were talking about and the commodification of it. Um, are we, is it inevitably on the path of racial capitalism or capitalism? Uh, let me say, first of all, I think uh, social media have disrupted our world uh, more profoundly than we've even begun to recognize. Uh, we've seen the first signs of it in the complete political uh, destabilization of uh, so many parts of the world, including yours. Uh, you know, and I think uh, these these uh, this these impacts are going to be felt felt a long time into the future. And it's very hard to think of any way that you can uh, change uh, change, especially social media and the ways that it's uh, interacting. Uh, with people and everywhere else, because uh, social media are really a machine of mimesis, uh, you know. So the the young Bangladeshi boy who has his uh, uh, who has his WhatsApp or whatever and sees pictures of his uh, of his countrymen or his relatives uh, out in um, somewhere in Europe thinks automatically that that's the best possible life. Uh, not being aware that, you know, those guys are living under very difficult circumstances. So how do we, how do we change it? Honestly, I don't know. I think social media are a part, very much a part of the planetary crisis. So there's a question following on about the aesthetic, the aesthetics of conquest, about, um, about the military. And you have an absolutely riveting chapter in The Nutmeg's Curse about the fossil fuel consumption of the military, which of course um, I've always, well, not always, but here in the UK, for instance, the Ministry of Defense is exempt from climate change uh, certification. And it's a big problem. No one seems to be able to get around it. Anyway, when I read your chapter about the American military, I thought, ah, okay, here is a possible answer. Can you tell us a bit about the, in, the, the kind of, the, the enmeshment between the American military and fossil fuels? Well, this enmeshment goes back to the 19th century. It essentially, it was fossil fuels that allowed Britain to, uh, you know, uh, seize hold of uh, so much of the earth, you know, and to fossil fuels completely buttressed uh, Britain's, uh, Britain's power uh, in that period. And this continues to be the case to this day. Uh, the, 
for the United States, but also really for all the, what you might call the five eyes nations. I mean, that is Australia, UK, uh, Britain, Canada. So it's very striking that in fact, uh, uh, fossil fuel consumption uh, by, uh, by the armed services around the world have gone up enormously. Uh, a single soldier consumes, I think about uh, three times as much today uh, in terms of fossil fuels as uh, they did uh, 15, 20 years ago. The Pentagon is the single largest emitter of greenhouse, institutional emitter of greenhouse gases in the world. Uh, much more than uh, most other countries. And I think these are actually huge underestimates. You know, it's estimated that uh, US, uh, that the US Def Defense Department emits maybe like 20% uh, of the US's uh, greenhouse gas emissions. But I suspect it's much more than that. Because if you take into consideration uh, research, uh, development of uh, uh, of weaponry and so on. I, I think it's probably much, much more. But again, these statistics are impossible to find. Even those statistics in general on climate change are so readily available. If you look for defense-related statistics, it's much, they are much harder to come across. But again, we have to remember that uh, these, uh, uh, this phenomenon is being replicated everywhere. China, Russia, India, etc., are all investing hugely uh, in fossil fuel intensive armaments. So, uh, you know, it's so striking that in the middle of this pandemic, uh, the Boris Johnson government, you know, holding back uh, on education and so much else, suddenly splashed out a huge increase uh, in defense spending. And the same thing has happened here. Uh, Congress passed a bill which actually exceeded uh, what the Pentagon had, uh, had, had asked for. Uh, this happened, I think, uh, I think just a few weeks ago. It's, uh, it's astonishing. So when you look around the world today, uh, the rich nations uh, were not able to raise even a hundred billion dollars, uh, you know, to- Yeah, for the fund. Yeah, for the fund. They, they managed to raise only 10 billion. But in that same period, they've increased their defense spending by more than a trillion. So what can you say? It's, uh, it's clear that uh, there's all this talk about uh, international processes and so on, but in fact, what they're doing is that they're just arming up. That's very scary, very scary. Um, we're pretty much out of time, I'm afraid, but I'd like, to, um, I'd like to end on this question from Dr. Penny Hay from the studio. Do you think there is space here for a reimagining the education system to address these issues? especially in relation to future generations and their stewardship of the environment. Um, I'm sure you will agree, but I would love to know your views on how we might do that, because that, that's very depressing about the military. We'll have to find out more. I would like, of course, as we all would, for us to revamp our education systems, our learning systems. Is it going to happen? I very much doubt it. In fact, what we see uh, in America today is a sort of a, uh, an attempt on many right-leaning states to completely shut down uh, the teaching of any kind of uh, critical uh, knowledge. Uh, you know, uh, Increasingly, I think we're going to see a situation where states will rely more and more on a certain kind of uh, propagandized uh, uh, view of the past and of the present. Do you feel that that's because everybody knows we're living on borrowed time, so we have to tell our narrative even stronger? Yes, that's essentially what's happening. Uh, I would say what you see across the world is a profound division. Uh, you know, uh, about half the population is uh, doubling down on the inherited narratives. About half the population can see that those narratives are not true. Mm. Uh, well, how do we reconcile them? I don't know. Well, one of the things, one of the wonderful things we have on our side is you, <laughs> to be able to keep writing and thinking and imagining and sharing the contents of your extraordinary brain with the rest of us. Um, Amitav, thank you so much for being with us. You're just so wise and wonderful, and I can't think of a better way to come to the end of this tricky year than to have had an hour talking to you and sharing it with all our viewers at home. Um, 
Viper 15 will be back in January. There'll be stuff up online in the next few days for what you can look forward to. So in the meantime, I'd like to say a big thank you to Amitav. Happy Christmas to him. Happy Christmas to all of you. Hope you get your boosters, even though we might all feel a little bit weird about that. I expect we'll get them anyway. So thank you very much. Thank you. Good night. Thank you, Rosie. Thank you for having me. Good night. Good night.